With new generative AI tools coming out almost every week, it's now apparent that we are on the cusp of having a generation of people that will soon be growing up with AI, similar to how generations before us grew up with mobile phones or the internet. So what steps do businesses and education groups need to take to train generation AI? Coming up next on Today in Tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Today in Tech. I'm Keith Shaw. Joining me in studio is Gaurav Rao. He is the Executive Vice President and General Manager for Machine Learning and AI at a company called At Scale. Welcome, Gaurav. Keith, thanks for having me. And I, I wrote that because I was going to say uh, at a comp- at company or at At Scale, and that would be weird. So at a company called At Scale. I know it doesn't work grammatically, but anyway, welcome. Uh so let's 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 jump right into it. You know, I, I do think that we now have a next generation, whether it's uh, high schoolers or even college students at this point, and then everybody younger than that. They are now seeing all these tools come out. It, it's such a rapid pace that these things have come out. And for a while, we thought it was slowing down, but then boom, all of these companies came out with a slew of new of, of new tools. Um, as we do this, do you feel like we we are going to need to make some changes to society to you know prep that next generation of students or workers too? I yeah. think so. I mean, you know, you think about the focus, and the focus has always been on enterprise. It's generative AI for the enterprise. It's Chat GPT for the enterprise. But when you take a step back, I think more fundamentally how we interact and consume with data is changing. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the ripple effect is on learning, consuming, using. And an area that we don't spend enough time on is what's the implication of generative AI on knowledge, knowledge learning, the workforce, and starting all the way back from, you know, early childhood education to now colleges and universities, how do we better prepare the future workforce yeah. for this type of technology. Yeah, what, what I find interesting about now of uh, the Gen AI tools is I look back to the when mobile phones came out, and then I look back to when the internet came out. Um, I'm old enough to remember a world where the internet didn't exist. I, I hope you remember some of that as well. I know you're probably younger than me. I, I do. Yeah. And like you think about, you know, learning in the past. And, you know, I have a stat here. Yeah. The brain has 85 billion neurons. And on average, it takes us 10,000 hours to master new things. Okay. That's like 17 days. <laughs> right. So, you know, a lot of that is repetition. Yeah. And now with generative AI, I have the ability to just query 175 zettabytes of data. That's just what's on the internet. Right. Right. And I get a query and I get a result back in seconds. Yeah. I can do that from my phone. I can do that from my computer. So when I think back to your question on growing up, yeah. How would I learn? How would I hit that 10,000 hours? I'm going to school. Yep. I'm learning from teachers. Yep. I'm going to the library. I'm opening up books, right? I'm using the Dewey Decimal System. Crazy concept. Exactly. No one ever knows how to use it. (laughs) Or, you know, if it's more technical, I'm researching, I'm synthesizing papers. Yeah. And then encyclopedias became a thing for a while. And then not to date myself, but Encarta, you know, became (laughs) the the thing to use when you were in school. And then you had the internet. But... Okay, so we're going to keep going because I got I got another another anecdote here. So the other day, I was with my daughter who's fourteen, and I asked her, or she and she was going with me to a concert, and she was wearing a tie. Um, so because the, that's the it, thing, it's the thing for this yep. band. They all dress up, and so um, I said, "How did you learn how to tie a tie?" Because she took one of my ties and basically tied it. She goes, "Whoa! I just watched a YouTube video on it." And it just, it was like, blew my mind because I didn't have that. I had to learn from my dad or I had to learn from, you know, another person on how to tie it and then practice and practice and practice. She goes, yeah, I just watched this video a couple of times and and then figured it out. I'm like, okay, that's, so again, my initial question was, you're having a generation now. It's probably, it's, you know, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds are probably going to struggle. But anybody under that age, like that, the, the tween or even, you know, new people coming out, they're going to be exposed to it and they're going to think that's the default setting. 
versus the rest of the world, which is like, ooh, it's new, it's scary, I don't know if I'm going to use it. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how are we going to train this next generation with the ability to have this technology right at their fingertips. And, you know, do you, do you think it, it will lower the bar in terms of, you know, allowing people to understand a certain subject, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it could also, but could this make us dumber like the way that they say Google made us dumber? Well, I mean, coming back to our kids, yeah. you know, does, does your daughter, can she drive? Not yet. Well, no, because she's 14. She's 14. Well, well, my older one can, and, and I'm trying to train my son right now who just so, got his permit. You know, one of the things I always think back to is when I was learning how to drive, that dreaded road test made you parallel park. Yeah. Do we continue to make kids parallel park in the future? Half the cars that are coming out now have assisted driver capabilities. And so I think it's the same concept applies here. You're going to teach them how to park because it's a fundamental to driving, whether you trust the automated capability of the car or not. There's a core element of if I learn how to drive, these are some of the things I just have to be able to do. And parking is one of them, even if you want to trust the car to do it yourself. Right. And I think when we think about generative AI and sort of the expectations everyone has around immediate consumption, we have to train students around proper use. They have to have enough core competency, whether they're developers who are going to build and use this technology, they need to understand how it works. Or if they're users, just your children, my children, you know, they need to understand the difference and realize whether the thing that's getting generated and created is even correct. And to do that, you have to have some mastery of the subject itself to say, hey, this uh, prompt around FDR's New Deal is complete BS. Like it's not, it wasn't this date. It wasn't this timeline. Right. So there's like some subjectivity or situational awareness. There's certainly some accuracy that's going to have to come into into play. Exactly. Whether whether or not, so someone's going to have to know whether the facts that are being spit out are are accurate. Um, But could, you could still use this to, familiarize yourself with a topic and then and then it, it's almost like those those videos where they would always go at the end of the video you know to learn more about the roman empire uh visit your local library exactly yeah. i think this is a great tool for augmentation in the learning environment where you know you're going to start to have maybe initial subjects explored through something like a prompt and yeah. you, you say okay i know nothing about the roman empire i know nothing about fdr you spit something out and it's going to want you to now go down the path of maybe going to your local library, yeah, yeah. going to your teacher, right? Going to a book. It becomes an augmented step that you take as part of that process. Okay. So it does feel like I think you and I would agree that um, we're not going to ban ChatGPT and some of these generative AI tools um, because we do understand the value of it, in, in but that it that it be used in conjunction with or interacting with other types of educational tools, whether it's a human, whether it's a professor, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a another video that they're going to be watching on how to learn how to tie. Well, ex- exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think you know it comes to two points. Like you have to learn enough so that you can trust the output, but then coming back to that, you know, how our brains learn. Yeah, you need to kind of go through the process for some core disciplines where. You can't just get an output. You have to learn how to derive that output and go through the steps like math, physics, geometry. Those are certain technical subjects where you can't just learn from an answer. And I think there's a difference between those core technical subjects and maybe content creation, right? Or marketing analysis. So that process of learning for those core subjects needs to kind of take an augmented approach versus other subjects where I think, look, it can at least teach you enough to now warrant going down the road of going much, much deeper. Could, could we end up though with, with a generation of, of people that aren't interested in taking that next step and they just use the tool to get the answer what what they need. I, I've seen some stories about this where the schools are finding out that kids are, are typing in a prompt getting a spit out answer and then just copying and pasting it. And they didn't realize that within that text graph, they never even read the result, which is, Hey, as a inner artificial intelligence thing, I cannot do certain things. And they turn that in rather than actually reading the, the output that they get. Um, and they see it more as a cheat sheet tool versus uh, having an actual understanding. And then I go back to my 
growing up. And I look, well, you know, I did use cliff notes for a lot of these books that we were supposed to read. And sometimes you didn't read the book and you went to the cliff notes to try to find out the major themes. I, I think is, is there a danger of that with, with AI? I, I think there is. And I, it comes back to a lot of, you know, coming back to even when I grew up, the TI-83 calculator, okay. right? Yeah. You know, you learned math, you learned how to build these graphs. And then we said, look, calculators are not going away. We should learn how to embrace them as part of core curriculum and core learning. So they taught you how to graph. But in order to graph using that calculator, you still had to understand the core fundamentals of, you know, uh, differential equations, et cetera, et cetera. So I think coming back to your question, I think we're going to have to teach responsible and proper use, similar to what we're doing in the enterprise. Yeah. You know, there's regulation, there's control. I'm not advocating we do that for education per se, but I think institutions, whether it's at the university level, the collegiate level, the high school, maybe even earlier, because I think this is going to happen earlier and earlier, are going to have to build their own guardrails and best practices around use, because I don't think you're preparing kids for the future if you're going to just completely ban it. Yeah. But to your point, there's always abuse of certain technology. Yeah. And how do you teach younger adults and younger students not to abuse, but to responsibly use it in a way that's going to help their productivity? Right, right. So how do we start using Gen AI for technical education purposes? You know, are we going to have to... It, you, you know, are we teaching this in, in, are we going to teaching this in high school or is the AI basically going to do with it at some point? I, I remember early days of when I was in high school, there were some coding classes. There were some computer classes. Most of the people that went into computer science that I knew went in in college and it was all like, oh, well, I have to learn a language. So I have to learn Fortran or I have to learn C++ mm -hmm. or, and now it's probably Python and seven and 17 other different languages. Uh, that's how you got a degree in computer science was they would teach you the, the coding language. Now, if you have Gen AI that can code it pretty much for you, if you can express the idea of what you want to do, it we might not be there yet. Cause I know that, you know, a lot of the code it spits out, you still have to check it and you have to have a basic understanding of that. But in the future, how do we then change training someone in AI or training someone in coding? I think generative AI is going to be inherent to technical education because you're either using it, consuming it, or building it. And in every one of those aspects, there's an element of code, there's an element of use. And so kind of what we were talking about earlier, I think in those degrees, whether you're a computer science degree or you're an electrical engineer or a physicist, the colleges of engineering are going to start making this type of tech and capability electives. Mm -hmm. They're going to start saying, look, in order to prepare you for a, you know, if you have a ML degree, this has to become part of that. And they're going to have to teach it depending on the type of student you are. Like if you're going in as a developer, you're still taking math, physics, computer science. You need to know the principles yeah. because at the end of the day, if you're a builder, it's about applying it to something, right? So it's about applying this AI. And in order to do that, you still need to know how these models are trained, the compute inefficiencies, yeah. fine tuning, et cetera. So for that set of students, this becomes a learning technique as well as building the foundational elements on how these things work. Yeah. And then I think for other technical degrees, right, you're going to start to figure out how do I start to incorporate this as part of my teaching, mm -hmm. right, to more efficiently allow students to learn. And I think a great example of that is here in Boston, Harvard with um, CS50, right, is using ChatGPT as a helper for code. Yep. And everyone's like, oh my God, they're here to replace the TAs. And they're like, whoa, take a step back. It's actually the opposite. Yeah. If our TAs are spending less time grading and looking for errors in code, they're spending more individual time with CS students to help them progress through the areas that they need help right, with. Right. So it's teaching technical subjects can actually see this as an aid. Right. Right. Because it's taking those complex manual tasks offloading that to an agent yeah. and then it's allowing the professor and the TAs to give you more personalized one-on-one -on -one time 
So in that regard, for those core technical education subjects, I see generative AI actually aiding right. the learning process. And, and we've had people on the show here uh, that use ChatGPT and generative AI, and this was the early versions of this. This was not even the latest tools. Uh, using them in a class, and you know, we had a like a entrepreneurship professor who was teaching how to be an entrepreneur, and he said, "Yeah, go ahead and use this for your presentations. You know, have it use it. I'll know if you just copied and pasted, um, but use it as a framework and build you know your presentation around some of these these new tools. Um, it, it, it's going to need professors that understand how to use it as a teaching tool rather than just replacing." It, well, exactly, yeah. and it's it's going beyond even just technical areas, you but know. Do, yeah do you, do you see do you see colleges and universities that are going to create new degrees in in this, or is it going to be more like a business pla- class where it's like you, you don't get a degree in PowerPoint, for example, right? You you but you might take a class, or one of the the sessions in the class might be how to use PowerPoint if they even get to that point. So, but are there going to be degrees? I've, I've seen some schools that do artificial intelligence degrees, but this was before generative AI. I think, I think it's going to become, I think it's going to take a little time yeah. for those types of degrees to come out. But I do think this is going to become core curriculum in technical and business tracks. Because like I said, if you're technical, you're using it, you need to learn how to use it. Maybe you want to go work for one of these companies. And in order to get the skill set to go work at these companies, you need to learn some of the core components and yeah. the fundamentals. But then to your point on the business side, if you're a listener and you're, you know, like, I'm not a technical geek, I'm not, I don't know anything about machine learning, you know, ML engineering, chances are whatever product or service or, you know, offering you're taking to market is either going to be looking at this, whether to build, buy or partner you got to be thinking, well, how do I make money? Yeah. How do I price and package? How do I go to market? How do I hire? Right? All of those things are going to be critical for future success. So that's why even if you don't have a degree per se on generative AI, your data science disciplines are going to be including this because it's that fundamental going yeah. forward. And, and how quickly do you think a lot of these educational organizations are going to be able to move because it doesn't feel like that they move quickly. Um, like our high schoolers are probably still, they're still using Chromebooks, for example, and, and teaching methods from maybe 10 to 15 years ago because they don't have the money or the, the speed. I think it's going to take, this. it's going to take a while. And in yeah. fact, you know, in May, 2023, UNESCO did a global survey of over 500 different universities yeah. on where they are in terms of adoption or even building practices and the survey came back with fewer than 10% have developed institutional policies. So that tells you people are recognizing the potential, but they're slow moving bodies. And to be honest, education and the education system mirrors government, mm-hmm. private sector. Yeah. It's the same thing, right? Yeah. The same challenges those institutions are dealing with when it comes to adopting AI and now generative AI. It's the same that's happening at the school level too. Yeah. So in order to, I don't want to say combat that, or as a, as a reaction to the, f- to the fact that it's going to be a slow-moving institution, I feel like I want to expose my kids to th- these tools as soon as possible and tell them, here's, all the, here's a different tool, use this, use this. They probably already know it because they're teenagers and they know more than me anyway on, on everything. So, you know, is, is it good advice to, if you have kids in this generation, like you just have a kid and you're starting this process to, you know, give them these tools and let them play with them and, and learn from it and absorb it because the schools might not be there ready by the time they're in school, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, in my own personal life, you know, I'll ask my son who's five, you know. See, you're right. You're, you're at that uh, right gener, like the right age group right now. Well, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, tell me about a story you want to hear, right? And so we'll make up interesting stories using chat GPT. You know, I'm like, tell me anything. Like, yeah. what, what would you want this story to have in it? And he'll say it. And I'm like, look, let's create something. And I think the intellectual curiosity at that age, he's like, oh, there's this thing that built really cool, interesting stories. He doesn't know the future potential of it, but he's recognizing that it's a thing. Yep. And it's aiding our personal time together, you know, when we read every night. And not we don't do it every night, but the idea here is bring it in earlier. And I'm hoping schools start to bring it in earlier because responsible use of it 
even at an early age, I think is going to be important because yeah. to your point, this is just going to become more and more ubiquitous. It's in our phones. It's on our laptop. It's on the internet. Yeah. It's in every tool we're starting to use. Microsoft Office has their co-pilots. Like this type of generative content is becoming permeable just in everything that yeah. we touch. And, and I see an example too of the dan- the potential dangers of this. Because again, when my kids were three, four, five, it was the early days of the phones and the tablets. So I, and I'd be like, yeah, here, have this, this tablet and here, have this phone, you know, knock yourself out. And now all they do scroll, 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 and then they don't pay attention. Now, part of it's that they're teenagers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would, they would do that if they didn't have it. They would be distracted by something else. Um, but I'm wondering if, if, as long, if we're not monitoring them along the way, could it go down a, a, a path that we might not be ready for? I mean, it's hard to predict the future. It's hard to predict. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we both know kids are curious. So yeah. it's very easy for kids to say, okay, well, now that I've tested this out, Hey, I wonder if it can do my math homework. You know, hey, I wonder if it can yeah. help me write this essay. And I think teachers, like in certain institutions, are recognizing that, hey, this is going to become a thing. We need to start looking at technologies that are going to help us screen, yeah. right? Screen my kids' essays, screen resumes. Like, this is just going to become a thing. Or, or screen how we grade things. Exactly. Change, you know, instead of just giving you a quiz to see if you know it. I guess if you're using it to, to, to do math problems, you're not going to know it. And so a quiz would be helpful. But if you're writing an essay, you know, really, really like almost do an oral report type of a thing rather than, you know, something handed an essay. I oh, guess. exactly. Yeah. Or, or like our math example from like, you know, when, when I was a kid, the test that they built assumed you were using these TI-83, you know, graphing calculators. Yeah. It wasn't devoid. It was inclusive of it. Yeah. So the way you ask the questions to make sure you learn and understand the content is different. Okay. So I want to understand how you, how you, now you've got some anecdotal experience, both in your personal life, uh, but also with the people that you work with at AtScale. Uh, how are you seeing, uh, you know, your, your colleagues using it? How do you see coworkers and, and employees? How do you see your family using a lot of these tools? Um, I've got a bunch of bullet points, you know, coding, creating artwork, creating resumes, creating music prompt engineering, like what, what, you know, give me some examples of what you're seeing now. Yeah. I mean, I think what we see and what we're doing is very similar and analogous to what we see in a lot of different enterprises. Yeah. It's all about productivity and time to value. Like what can I remediate? What can I automate that's time consuming and repetitive? And first and foremost, I see code generation co-pilots are becoming big. Mm-hmm. Whether you're in GitHub and using GitHub co-pilot, whether you're gener- you know, building Python or R or SQL, even if you're super familiar and a technical expert, this is still just saving you minutes, seconds, hours over a period of time where you've got this assistant to help you kind of code create. Yeah. And then the second area I see it helping a lot is in assistance and chatbots. So customer success. Right. We see that or in customer support or in product, like you're on your web favorite, you know, online shopping website. You're waiting for a while and you get some pop up saying, hey, do you need help with that? You know, or, hey, here's a discount. Right. I think those types of examples of building agents to aid and assist people are the first use cases we've been seeing. Yeah. And then content creation. So marketing teams, I think, are going wild because they're realizing I can build blogs. I can build press releases. Like what used to take me hours to summarize and synthesize are here. You hit a trigger point for me. Uh Uh-oh. From a a journalism standpoint, blogs and press releases were the most boring things on the planet to begin with. And now you're going to have an AI, which doesn't have a lot of personality or creativity, to be honest. Zero personality. Yeah. So, I mean, are they just spitting them out or are they looking at them and going, okay, now I can tweak it and add some, some flavor to it? There wasn't a lot of flavor to begin with. I hope they're (laughs) editing and tweaking because that's part of your brand is, you know, the personality that you bring to the table. So I think for... Because you shouldn't use it to try to make your blog more interesting because that's not going to work. Exactly. And I I think, you know, that's where, at least in the industry, we saw like the first use case. Yeah. And that's kind of where things started to take off. Then we saw the coding and the assistance. And I think... I think you're going to start to see more 
unique and differentiated use cases. So one example for, you know, that we've seen is legal documents and financial reports. Those are hard to summarize and stay on top of. Yeah. So if I have 10 minutes in the morning, if I can create a synthesized TLDR version of Apple's, you know, financial report or Google's financial report in seconds, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do it. Because it's saving me the time to go find it, yeah. research it, yeah. read through it. I just want the the key nuggets to pull out. And I think for those types of use cases, again, it's going to be productivity. But then, you know, for a lot of these large organizations, that third-party data becomes a source for your competitive advantage going forward. Right. Uh, in our case, for example, on our show, we I use on, on certain occasions, I will use MidJourney to create a thumbnail to mm-hmm. talk about whatever topic we were for that for that episode, um, and that sometimes helps. I think some of the, the, the images that they come up with are certainly kind of cooler than using stock images and photos, stock photos, things like that. Um, or we we try to do the the goofy ones, like we we did. What would it look like if um, Microsoft bought Nintendo? And so we had Mario in a suit and Princess Peach in a suit, and we did a little slideshow on that. So it's more of the creative, funny things that we could add in. I think I did. Mark Zuckerberg with a beard. Oh, that's awesome. Because we think he would look more manly if he had a beard versus versus not. And um, so things like that. And again, I don't, we're not at that point yet where we're creating music or creating videos, but I've seen other groups try it and it's just not there yet. Well, I, I mean, I've yeah. seen, you know, I've met a couple of startups, you know, in the AI space where it's more about um, video, cre- like episodes. So you, you think about the time it takes for a production company to get together build an idea, build a script, go execute that script, yeah. write, you know, yeah. all of that. Yeah. And now I think we're starting to see companies that are actually trying to solve that with generative AI, yeah. right? They know the behavioral characteristics of the audience, what they like, the kind of humor they like, the things that favorably do well with audiences, and they're coding that into their characters, right? They're building those styles and yeah. traits into their characters. And then the whole process of actually producing content and shows is now also dramatically being simplified because you know you have the generative capability to go build the characters go build the scene go build yeah. the set right and i think you know you saw if you're a south park fan you know south park right like, right this was, is starting to happen more yeah I, and again i think i i hope that companies don't fall into the trap of taking whatever is spit out by these ais and then accepting that I've done I've done this now twice, you know, from a creative standpoint. Uh, all of my new D and D characters, for example, I I have Gen AI, you know, ChatGPT create a backstory. But I also know what type of character it's going to be, whether it's going to be male or female, what what race they're going to be, and and so, sort of the the hooks. Mm-hmm. It just spits out a story, and it's usually pretty generic. And then I use my brain as like, okay, I'm going to change this here, I'm going to change this here. And then I did the same thing. I'm in a, I'm in a play uh, in December, and the director asked us to come up with backstories for our character so i said okay well you know i know that this guy is going to be this this age in this year so i backtracked it to when he was going to be born and then i said well what so i used chat gpt give me the 10 common names you know of people born in 1891 and they came up with a list and then i picked which one i liked uh, and then, so that went into the, my story. And then I figured that he was going to be 26 during World War One, so he would have probably joined the army in World War One. The character now works at a radio station. This is a long story. Um, so you, you know, so but then I used ChatGPT as a framework to start. And it gave me some ideas, but I was like, I don't like that idea. I'm going to switch it with something else. And mm-hmm. by the end, it felt like it was my story with the help of, of ChatGPT. Yeah. And it, like to, to riff on that, yeah. like on the tech side, I think what we're going to start seeing, and we already see it in the open source, but you're going to see more domain specific AI models. Yeah. Right. ChatGPT is great because, you know, it's lowering the bar for access. It's free. At least there is a free version. But if I was a production company or if I'm moving into the entertainment space to do this, I'm not using chat GPT. I'm going to build my own model that understands, right, as input, some of the things that you just mentioned. Yeah. Because that's not what chat GPT was trained off. Of, right, right. Right. So it's doing the best it can. Um, I will tell you, I used chat GPT to give me my fantasy football name because I wanted something creative. <laughs> See, okay. like that was I, I've, I've typed in the same thing and th- they're not that good. The no, ideas not good. are not good. We've asked it to make jokes for us. We've asked it to do fortune cookie 
uh, you know, fortunes and they're bland. And, you know, our, our director, Chris was like, I could guess which one was written by a human and which one wasn't. And he was, he was 10 for 10. Exactly. Like he I think, knew it. and I think, you know, coming to the earlier conversation, like I've used it personally with my kids for like stories. I was telling you earlier, my wife yeah. is starting to use it. She didn't, she, my, the question to me after she was, uh, in one of her social media moms groups was, you know, there's this thing, it's called chat GPT. <laughs> yeah. and I'm looking at her like, oh yeah, okay, where's this going? She's yeah. like, one of these moms just suggested to go to Trader Joe's with a prompted grocery list for meal preps. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to make for the kids this week. Here are the ingredients that they like, here are the types of things. And then chat GPT created a grocery list and, you know, meals. Okay. And she and so did we, you follow through on this? We did. Okay, and it was actually pretty good. Really? Okay, pretty good or uh, pretty well. Uh, so or I, was it? Or is it? Is the recipe equivalent of of a of a story or a joke or a or a press release? <laughs> it was a little bit above. It was okay. not the chicken nugget of like what my kids <laughs> right. eat. So let me put it that way, right? It was a it was a step above chicken nuggets okay. and pizza. So did your kids eat it? They did. And did you force them, or did you, or did they were like, okay, I guess they they yeah. There was a little bit of, yeah. uh, you know, swizzling them to give it a try, yeah. but I think they liked it. Okay. I, I, that's what I, that's what I fear. Cause again, I've got kids that are, that won't eat anything that they're, they're too old now. They, they just mm-hmm. do their own thing. Um, and like but a, a different, yeah. you know, outside of the kids. I'm, well, I'm willing to try stuff, but there are certain ingredients I know I don't like. Like, I don't like adding onions to things. And I was like, okay, even if you dice the onion up so that you don't taste it, I would still be able to taste it. And it would be like, eh. Well, and so that's what, that's why I'm, I'm hesitant on those. You know, for example, OpenAI last week had a thing where you could point your phone at, at your refrigerator and it'll give you, you know, a recipe. It's like, okay, well. It's going to, it's going to be, it's going to be some sort of fancy recipe of new age. You know, I'm a meat and potatoes and corn kind of guy. Like, so I don't necessarily need the help. So maybe it's, it's not for me, but maybe there are people that, that like to experiment with cooking. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think even, you know, coming back to knowing responsibly how to use it, if you're building a recipe and let's say someone has a nut allergy and you forget to include that as part of your prompt yeah. to chat GPT, right. maybe some of the recipes you get back are potentially going to, you know, put your you know kid or someone in like a anaphylactic response, right? right. So right. It's, there are some dangers and it's, it requires people to really take the time to learn it. Yeah. And so that, that's a great segue to bring me back sort of to our original conversation with prompt engineering is something I think needs to be better trained, but where do you find the prompt in prompt engineering experts on your staff or in your school to better train them? Cause my, my experience on mid journey, for example, I usually just do a generic prompt that doesn't get, I mean, I think the vagueness of the response, I want to see the variety. Mm-hmm. And then I, 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 then I adjust it, but I've seen examples on the, the mid journey site where beautiful, beautiful images. And then they tell you what the prompt was. And these prompts are like five or six sentences long talking about aspect ratio, lighting and different, different illustration styles. And is it like that in the, in the, in the regular chat GPT world where you have to do longer prompts to get a better response or it does the genericness of it, of a prompt. Is that better? I think when we start, like in our own yeah. enterprise and even at AtScale, specificity for us matters. Okay. And I think when you're in an organizational setting, specificity is going to matter because if you're doing it, your competitors are probably doing it. So if you're using generic prompts, chances are your output is not going to have the right accuracy that you want to be differentiated from everyone else that's doing yeah. it. So, you know, for us, we generate a lot of code. We generate SQL. We generate MDX, right? These are libraries and languages that sometimes can be hard for, you know, first-time users. So if we can spend the time to go through the prompt engineering and say, here are the best practices on you want to go generate this kind of measure or this type of calculation, we're saving them time and they're getting the productivity boost. Yeah. And every single one of those, I'll say, prompts have been gone through the rigor of let's add this to it. Let's remove this. Mm-hmm, let's mm-hmm. supplement it with this because 
the more input you give to help fine tune that model, the more accurate and the expected outcome you're going to get. Right, right. Now, I want to move on to the next question. This is going to put you on the spot a little bit, but would your company hire someone who might not have uh, a computer engineering degree, but they come to you with a re- you know resume or in the interview can can you know demonst- you know demonstrably show that they understand these AI tools uh, that deal with prompt engineering? If, if if I came into your your office and I go, well, I don't have a computer engineering degree, but um, I've been using ChatGPT for for the last year and a half, and the co- you know here's some examples of the code I used with it, and then I added my own knowledge and experience. Like recruiting departments and HR departments, and, and you know you're at an executive level, so you you're involved in hiring. You know how, how fast can you guys change to allow for these new types of hires? We have to. Yeah, and I would say yeah. to your is initial urgent, question, is it urgent or is it? It's it's yeah. absolutely we would hire someone. Yeah, because technology is changing, so should the hiring process. And I think now, even without generative AI, even if we took that off the table. Skills matter more than degrees. Okay. And we've been hearing that too. Yeah. Because if you have experience in applying AI for, you know, tabular AI, machine learning, deep learning, now generative, that matters more where customers and where companies are now than the student who's coming in with a generic electrical engineering degree, computer science degree, because they might have the fundamentals, but they haven't learned how to go apply it. And that's where you're spending a lot of time bringing up new yeah. hires and interns. So absolutely, I would hire purely off of skill than just having a fancy degree or title. And on the on the opposite end of that, how do you encourage the employees that may have been at the company for 10 or 15 years who have the degrees and they've got the years of experience? They've, they've been coding this way, you know, since they started. Um, do you get any resistance from, from those people that go, oh, I don't want to learn this or I don't need to learn this. This is just going to replace me as a, as, you know, it's going to, this is going to fire. I'm going to end up being fired because, you know, they're going to do all this. Um, do you get any of that resistance or do you, do you feel that the employees are like, oh no, this is something I need to learn and I want to learn it. We get a little bit of both. And I think it starts with the culture that you're going to foster. Like if you're immediately coming in and saying, this is banned, I think that's going to send a tone to your employees. Yeah. Versus if you encourage exploration around it, like maybe you give them some credits to go try this out on their favorite, you know, rest endpoint on their favorite, you know, cloud environment. Um, And then maybe even take it so far as to go, hey, now that you've tried it, why don't we do a hackathon? Why don't we see if there's actually interesting ways that we could use this to improve our own productivity? Yeah. And I think the people that are always worried about you know, this is going to replace my job. Like my favorite response to that is, I don't think AI is going to replace someone's job, but I think someone who's using AI and using it responsibly is going to replace somebody who isn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we see this all the time, like take this out of the context of, you know, a enterprise, you and I probably spend time having to deal with call centers, whether we like to or not, right? Something goes wrong, you call somebody. And are you okay spending 45 minutes, 90 minutes to an hour, you know, saying, hearing the, let me, let me patch you to the next person. Let Mm -hmm, me patch you mm -hmm. to the next person because we're, you know, producing jobs, we're keeping people employed, or do you want to get that time to resolution? Are you willing to get an answer faster by having an automated agent using generative AI get you to the person who knows that answer faster yeah. so you can get off the phone? It does feel like, though, that's that's one of the areas where there's resistance for me as a customer because we've, deve- we've dealt with really bad chatbots mm-hmm. pre-gen AI. You know, these were all call and response type systems. And a pop-up window would be like, hey, what can I help you with today? And I just want to talk to a human because I, I for example, this is my example with Amazon is that I got shipped. I ordered something. It was a little soda stream beverage pack of flavors. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the soda stream. No, I do. So they sent me the wrong flavor. Okay. So I, so I went to the Amazon site and they have a chatbot and I said, you know, I want to return this. And then the, the chatbot spit out, well, you can't return it because it's food. I, I guess Amazon has a thing where you can't return food. You can't return beverages. I said, well, can I get a refund? And it, and it went through this infinite loop of, no, no, we can't, we can't, we can't. And finally, and, and of course, Amazon doesn't, Amazon doesn't give you a phone number. 
to try to talk to someone. But I had such a unique problem that couldn't be resolved from the chatbot because it was still chat, you know, call and response and didn't know what to do. So I've, I've got this fear that, you know, I, unless the company and the customer service says, now powered by AI or Gen AI, so, you know, make it happy and flashy, that maybe I'll have a, because again, I don't know half the time if that little pop-up window is a chatbot, a call and response, if there's an actual human on the other end. I, I do know that there's voice that I could tell it is there's a human on the other end. So how do, how do companies get around that to, is it just the, Hey, 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 we're, we're Gen AI now. I think, you know, it's, that's actually an interesting point. I think. And how, how would you do deal with it at at scale? Like, yeah, I mean, we, we are starting to look at sort of a co-pilot or an assistant. We're doing it more from a code perspective, but but internally, right? Even internally, internally. And then we want to doing it externally. We want to make it externally available because we want time to value productivity and, I think, you know, coming back to the call center, I've worked with a call center where they have various levels of support, level one, level yep. two. So yep. when you call, so this is a calling example, you know, you're routed to level one support. They can't figure it out. They're sending you to level two, then level three. And then finally, you're like, it's been an hour and a half. You're yelling at the final person <laughs> you're talking to. And you're like, I just want to know what's wrong right. Right? or fix this. Right. And they finally do. Yeah. So the company that we had been working with said, look, we want to automate the deflection rate from some of the level one, level two, level three. We're not firing people. What we're going to do is those people that typically would have been taking level one, level two calls, we are building domain expertise so that there's more people at level three or, you know, what the levels need to be shorter. And then there's more people who have now been trained on a broader set of knowledge to finally answer the question. Yeah. And so it was a kind of interesting take. It wasn't replacing jobs. It was repurposing people to do higher impact work. Yeah, I I think that might be a generational thing, too, with people. You know, again, I grew up with I could call someone on the phone and get an answer and never really adapted to the new technology. Maybe my kids or their kids, kids, you know, then at some point they'll be like, oh, yeah, let's talk to the AI and the AL fix my problem for me. Yeah. And, and not, not just give me the answer, but then we'll actually go in and, and, and fix the problem if it's a technical problem type of a thing. Right. And like what I described was very manual, but coming back to your, you know, the example you went through and how we think about it, if you're going to incorporate generative AI as part of an assistant or customer success chatbot, this becomes part of your product experience. Like you can't just say, this is my product. And then support is sort of off on the side and treated separately that is now an integrated suite of experiences that you and I as customers yeah. are now expected to deal with. So I don't think generative AI becomes the thing that you throw over the other end of the, the spectrum. It's, this is part of my product now. How we resolve right. and remediate issues in product is part of the product. Right, because that's what I'm seeing in a lot of press releases now. It's like company X goes, we now have Gen I, Gen A. You know, we've, we're proud. It's a press release. We're proud to Was announce. by ChatGPT? <laughs> we're proud to announce that we've now added ChatGPT to our stuff. I was like, well, okay, so does that make your stuff better now? And like, yeah, it's like, you just kind of shake your head. I was like, why not just say, I don't know, what would you say? New and improved, I guess you would have yeah. to do that old marketing message. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. you're going to, you said it earlier, yeah. I think you can very easily tell content that's created by a chatbot. Yeah. And I think you're going to see resistance to that. And I think you're going to come back to a new level of creativity that has to get forced and created now. Because it's, <laughs> forced all right, creativity, that's great. Forced that's creativity, <laughs> right? It's like, how do I take this output and maybe even dumb it back down and then add my spin to it? And then it's like, wait a minute, why don't I just write this? Yeah. Like, yeah. why am I, why am I spending more time re-engineering or re-prompting yeah. unless there's a value added benefit or time to value, right? You're going to write these a lot. So like, all right, I'll do it once. I'll get it right. I'll spend the time. And then I know I'm going to do this once a month. Yeah. But if I'm doing one press release a quarter, I mean, if, to be honest, me personally, I'm going to write it myself because that's part of the authenticity. And it's, I, I'd spend more time trying to re-engineer the prompt and yeah. the output than just write it myself. That's, that's another problem for me with my generation too. It's I'm willing to try new tools, but if the tool isn't perfect or if it, if it doesn't necessarily replace a manual task or make it faster, I tend to go like, okay, do I really want to learn these things? And this was one of the problems I had with the recent Microsoft Copilot examples was that they came out with, you know, they're throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And, and so they've added AI to all of their products, <laughs> it feels like. 
And, and the way that I, I was watching some of the videos and they're like, okay, well now you can do this and this and this. And it's like, well, now I've got to learn seven new processes and things to click and where to look for them. And I'm like, do I really want to do that? If I, do I really want them to automate my emails when every email that I write in my brain, I, I, I add personality to it. I add logic to it. And I just don't see it yet of them being able to, you know, I don't really send out any automated messages. And that's why I'm a little afraid to, to adopt that. But is it just me getting over that fear that it, it might be finding I mean, the right tool, I guess. I it, don't know. It could be a combination of preference, finding the right tool where, you know, for maybe your like 80% of the emails you send, you're going to write them personally. And then yeah. maybe once a week, there's something where you're like, okay, I need to synthesize a few different things put things together, maybe in that scenario, you found your use case yeah. for a, you know. Have you, have you found any office or knowledge worker type tools or processes that you've been able to automate with Gen AI yet? I mean, I've been using, I've been testing with a lot of the um, the Google suite. I'm a, you know, a big Gmail fan. So I've been using some of the labs, you know, they in labs, okay. you can basically unlock some of their beta features. Yeah. And I do like some of the email summarization uh, capabilities that they have. Um, especially if you get a lot of email, okay, you know. So what do you? So what, so an email comes in instead of you reading it, you just have it summarize it. Well, you or does it automatically summarize? It, it, well, it, it doesn't. It's supposed to. I think that's where it's supposed <laughs> to get to. So there's to the TLDR is there's still some manual the intervention. Basically, yeah. exactly. The TLDR, the TLDR is uh, <laughs> you, you still have to do some work. Yeah. But if they can get it to a point where look, I I look at an inbox and maybe instead of a hundred emails, maybe there's a, a little summary next to each one. And it's like, oh, I got to go read this one first. Like, cause sometimes you get an email and unfortunately the nugget or the thing that you have to respond to or act on is like buried deep in the email. And you're telling your employee, like next time, just make that the subject or yeah. next time, bring it up to the front. Like that I can see personal um, productivity enhancement from like, especially if I'm reading stuff on my phone, right? If I'm on the go, right? Yeah. Like, well, yeah, I mean, that's always been the problem with emails is sometimes you get emails from people that are that need a response, like coworkers, but then I'm getting news alerts, I'm getting newsletters, I'm getting all this stuff. And, and Outlook, for example, right now, they have that whole focused and other tab, in, and, and I have to click between two tabs, because I'm one of those people that if I have a little, uh, the number of unread emails, if that's not low, I start to freak out. Me too. And then, but then I'm also, I don't organize all of my emails. I just keep them in the inbox too. But I know people that have, oh, I don't care. I've got 700 unread emails. And I'm like, what kind of person are you? Like, yeah. I mean, like, I, you know, coming back to these use cases in yeah. everyday life, like we all probably spend too much time in email. Like I'm, I don't know the still, stat. Still, and, and, and we still, and, and how long have we been developing apps to try to get us away from that? And what, what happens is we end up getting with more apps and then we get addicted to those apps. And so now I have, you know, Outlooks, Teams, Slack, you know, all of these things that are beeping me saying, prying for my attention. And if we could figure out, someone could figure out how to automate that to have the AI just take care of all of that. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's going to be there yet. Well, I mean, the, I did. Scary. Oh, so the, the one area where I found, and this is, this is going to help you, Gareth, is it going to be um, self-evaluation forms. <laughs> There was a round of, you know, I've heard some stories from other people at other companies that said, oh, it's time to do yourself, you know, employee self-evaluation. And they all were like, oh, I hate writing those. I hate writing those. I go, use ChatGPT. Just give it a prompt. Say, hey, could you write my self-evaluation? And I've done this, this, and this, and then come up with the text. And someone texted me and said, yeah, it worked. Like they submitted it yeah. without even well, no, they it read, no, they they read it and then they just they modified it a little bit, but mm. it got them that 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 four paragraph head start of of what to do. I mean, it's the same with resumes too, right? If you don't want to, yeah, have to I, would, write I would, I would, if I was going to do a resume now, I would definitely because I think that hiring managers are on the lookout for that. Yeah, um, and I'm trying to ask my so my my oldest is about to enter college and she's got to write college essays and the application process, and I have a feeling that that's going to be a red flag for so i'm going to say use it to give you that baseline but you're going to have to personalize a lot of things within it absolutely but it's there to in case you missed a point or something that might that they might be looking for right and like you know for coders and developers if you're going for a software engineering job or maybe an ai role yeah. you know one of the things we do a lot when we hire is we we scan the resume it's not it's there for you know an initial um, 
read yeah. on the individual. But me personally, the first thing that I'm looking at, especially for technical roles, is what did they share with us? Like, point me to your, you know, uh, S3 bucket where you've got Jupyter notebooks. Show me your code, yeah. right? Do you have your own personal website that has these? I think that is going to start to be another area where as generative AI gets uh, more mainstream, we're going to start to see, oh, here are example of prompts. You know, here's the impact of these prompts. Like yep. that's yep. what I want to see yep. versus someone who's, you know, sure, spend two hours creating a resume with ChatGPT. If you're in a technical role, like I'm just looking at that quickly anyway, I want to see what you can produce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, final question is, is how long do you think this will, this generational shift will take? Is it going to be five years or is it going to be 10 to 12? It's going to be kids that are born now. You know, you know, your son is five. Is that the, the time frame? by the time that he's in high school and college, then we'll see this shift or is it going to be faster? Is it going to be next year? I don't think it'll be next year. I don't think it'll be next year. Yeah. I mean, I think we're starting to see some of it permeate. Um, I would say I'm, I'm more in the five to 10 year mindset. Um, Especially as new tools come out and it gets better. New tools, yeah. security, controls, regulation, guardrails, yeah. like all of those things is what we see in the enterprise today. Um, you know, I mean, you look at the writer's strike, like there's a lot of things that are happening where yeah. AI is now getting used and we're saying, hey, we got to take a step back, yep. better understand it. And I think it's following a lot of the same patterns as Java as, you know, auto ML, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that was the craze. It's data science is going to save the future. And now it's all about <laughs> how do we simplify data science for everybody with yeah. automated machine learning? Now it's generative AI. So I think they all follow that same trajectory, but you can see it with investments from VCs and startups that are starting to form in this space. And then everything from culture, society, education, like there are generative AI use cases yeah. now for yeah. everything. All right, Gareth, thanks for coming in for, uh, just to see us. Uh, it was a great, great visit, and we'd love to have you back. And I, I think you know your homework assignment is you're going to keep monitoring all this AI stuff because I'd, I'd love talking about this. And this has been a boon for, for all of us, just talking about generative AI. Thank you for yeah. having me. I'd love to be back. All right, that's all the time we have for today's episode. Be sure to like the video, subscribe to uh, our feed here, uh, add any comments you have below. Join us every week for new episodes of Today in Tech. I'm Keith Shaw. Thanks for watching.